Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word. Hey everyone, and welcome to our podcast today. We are going to be looking at Matthew 22, verses 34 through 46. It's a continuation of where we have been. And I have to say, Alan, I, when I read this, I thought it kind of had two distinct parts to it. And I'm hoping you'll link it together for us a little bit. Well, the link, the link between the two is that they are two scenes in, the, um, in this controversy episode at the temple between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders, and, and in Matthew's gospel, particularly between Jesus and the Pharisees. So that's the link. The link is that, is that, is that these are two of the, of the uh, scenes of controversy um, between between them, um, here they ask him in the first episode about the greatest commandment, and he answers that question. And after he does so, he sort of turns the tables on them mm-hmm. by asking the question whether the Messiah is David's son or David's lord. So basically, what we're seeing here is the conclusion to this whole series of challenges presented to Jesus right. by the Jewish religious okay. leaders. Okay. Okay. So um, one of the I mean, this is some of the best known material. Yes, indeed. Scripture. I mean, this is one of the few things that people can um, can talk about. Uh, give us a background a little bit about this in terms of, you know, here we find versions of this in all three synoptic gospels. Uh, what, uh, where does it come from? Well, the question of the origin of this pericope uh, is, especially the, the one regarding the great commandments, the two great commandments, is perhaps surprisingly a difficult one. We would think mm-hmm. was something so basic and well-known, that everybody would all be on the same page. Many, but the situation is such that many historians, and I'm not talking about just the Jesus Seminar here, many historians are uncertain whether this can be attributed confidently to Jesus, actually. Wow. Which I think most people would be surprised to learn. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Absolutely. And the problem is that this particular pericope functions differently in all three Gospels. And in fact, it's found in a different setting in Luke entirely. Yes, um, yes. In, in Mark, as in Matthew, it's, it's part of the controversy scene um, at the temple. But in Mark, it reiterates, it basically the focus of this passage is that the, 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 there's a scribe who agrees with Jesus and, and, and expresses admiration for him. And, and he's, the, he's the one who, who uh, he basically uh, echoes Jesus' Uh, answer to the question, and and um, you know, it, it sort of reiterates in Mark the idea that all foods are clean, that the that mm-hmm. the ethical commandments of of the of the Torah are much more important right. than any of the ceremonial commandments. In Luke, however, it is the expert of the law, the expert in the law, who makes this statement in dialogue with Jesus. He comes to Jesus and asks how he should inherit the, how he could inherit eternal life, and Jesus says, "Well." You know the law. What does it say? And so then, right. the, the the expert himself gives this summary. This isn't from Jesus, mm-hmm. and and then it's followed right, by the right. parable of the good Samaritan, which basically right. you know makes it sort of a statement about um, um, loving God and loving loving your neighbor is is something that is to be meant to be applied universally. Right, and I you know as you say that, and as we read each one, we're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, but actually to compare them side by side like this. 
that's something um, I'm not sure everyone has done. Right. And um, all of a sudden you're seeing, oh, this is used very differently. In and actually, in terms of the content, there's a lot of agreement between Matthew and Luke, even though there is a lot of difference. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in fact, if you think about the fact that in Mark's gospel, the whole scenario ends with the scribe basically agreeing with Jesus and re- repeating ver- word for word what Jesus says. And, you know, Jesus says, and agreeing that, that these commandments are much more important than all the other matters, all the other ceremonial matters. One of the scribes agrees with him on this. Um, uh, and, and then Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven or from the kingdom of God. You know, the fact that that's omitted from both Matthew and Luke is also mm-hmm. significant. So there's a, uh, just a huge amount of variation in the three yeah. different versions of this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that's the reason why um, many historians are uncertain whether this right. can reliably be, be attributed to Jesus. Now, in Matthew, this episode, along with Jesus' question about the Messiah being David's son or David's Lord, as I said, concludes sort of the, this whole series of, of the Jewish religious leaders' attacks on Jesus at the temple. And in fact, it brings the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees to the point where they are silenced and all that is left for him to do then is to pronounce the series of woes on them in Matthew 23, which is actually a fairly um, negative text. It's probably one it of is. the most negative texts in the gospel oh, yes. tradition. Yes, it's, it is indeed. As in Mark, Jesus is the one, in Matthew's gospel, as in Mark, Jesus is the one who summarizes the two, two great commandments. <laughs> Unlike Mark, there's no hint that these two great commandments uh, relativize any of the least of these commandments. So, you know, we have this statement in Matthew 23 where Jesus says, you know, you tithe your your herbs from your garden, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. You should have done the weightier matters of the law without neglecting these other matters, like tithing the, the, the herbs from your garden. And, and in, in Matthew 5, 18 and, 19, 18 and 19, you know, Jesus says, um, you know, not one of the least of these commandments will pass away before all things are fulfilled. And so right. um, in, in Matthew, there's no hint that these two great commandments somehow relativize any of the least of the commandments. Rather, Matthew concludes that on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, which echoes, somewhat echoes Jesus' summary of the law and the yeah. prophets and the golden rule. So in Matthew, I think there is this sort of ethical focus, but without necessarily... Uh, uh, sort of sweeping away the ceremonial uh, laws, and so th- that's a that's a, again a, a unique setting. Um, you know, we, we wouldn't expect that, uh, but right. but that seems to be consistent with Matthew's setting. So, tell us a little bit more about the the oral and written traditions that that bring us to this. Well, again, based on the fact that you know we've got. We've got this, basically the same episode in three very different versions in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It can, really confounds all efforts at trying to sort out the oral and written traditions mm-hmm. and the relationships between them that produce such a striking combination of agreement and variety, um, which, you know, the, the, it, is the, it is the combination of agreement and variety that, that is the definition of the synoptic problem. Uh, it would seem that the prevalent idea is that Luke and Matthew both had access to a special tradition, which <laughs> I, I think that's sort of code for we really don't know <laughs> how mm-hmm. how in the world they got to to be a, such an agreement with one another over against Mark, but but 
because the agreements between Mark and Luke, between Matthew and Luke, are not as as uh, consistent as we would expect from Q materials. Um, reliance on the Q tradition seems to be out of question here. So you know when 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 it's not a clear reliance upon Mark or it's not a clear reliance upon Q, then oftentimes um, people who try to deal with gospel origins punt and and come up with this theory of a special tradition. But again, I think that basically means, you know, we don't really know where and how how this originated. Right. We don't know. And, you know, I'm always such a big proponent of oral traditions Mm -hmm. because... That was an era of such. I, such I think I, th- oral I think this particular passage could very well reflect the um, realities of the oral tradition, as as you opposed know, to the written what's tradition. Interesting about it, as I think about it, even today, this is one of the few um, pieces of scripture that people can cite. Oh, I know. You know, and they could put it everywhere, and you wonder, did it have that same power back then? So people memorized it and stuck it in different places, mm-hmm. and we end up with this very interesting yep. interesting written work. So, well, and of right. course, the, the real question here is whether the combination of the commandment to love God and the commandment to love one's neighbor goes back to Jesus, mm-hmm. or whether it was a combination that the early church um, formulated. And I, I think here the critical issue is that there's no precedent. There really is no clear precedent for combining the command to love God in Deuteronomy 6.5 with the command to love one's neighbor in Leviticus 19.18. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later mm-hmm. on, but the, I think that's the critical issue. There's no precedent for that. It is, of course, possible that early Christian scribes made the connection between the two commands. And essentially, you know, if you, if you take a look at Matthew's version of this story, it consists mostly of citations of Scripture. Right. Right, I mean that's that's the mm-hmm. that's the bulk of the content of Matthew's version of this of this um, pericope. So, I mean, I, I think it, that that sort of lends some credence to the idea that early Christian scribes could have made the connection between the two commands that they found in the Septuagint. But for me, it's the unprecedented combination of the Shema with the command to love mm-hmm. one's neighbor in Leviticus nineteen eighteen that is sufficient evidence to point to Jesus. I I agree with that, and it it definitely fixes it puts. It definitely um, fits within a context of what we know about the things that Jesus did say. Surely, and I think it's, I mean, to me, it's just awesome. But well, I, I it's foundational. It's foundational. Yeah, I had a question to that end, though. You know, you made this comment here about tying Deuteronomy six five to Leviticus nineteen eighteen. Is there any Jewish literature later, like post Jesus, that ties those together? Um. That I'm not sure of. Um, I, 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 I don't think that the rabbinic tradition made that connection. Um, I, um, I, they did have their own version of the golden rule um, that was formulated a little bit differently. The, the tradition history and, and the, the sources behind the three versions that we have in our synoptic gospels aren't very clear and that's that's you know that that upsets some of the some of the historians that are trying to sort these things out but um, I just think at this in this point sometimes it's easy to miss the forest for the trees and, and just not to see that you know this is an unprecedented step and and I think it, it would take someone with Jesus mind and Jesus understanding uh, to to put that together I agree I agree so 
How does Matthew introduce this this particular pericope? Well, surprise, surprise, surprise. Matthew introduces this episode in a way unique to his gospel, <laughs> just like he's done many times. Right. Uh, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked him a question to test him. Um, Matthew's introduction, therefore, connects this interaction with the previous one, which we've skipped over in, in, in our mm-hmm. journey through Matthew. Yes, we did, we did. The, the lectionary that, skips that, uh, where, where the Sadducees, and that was the party affiliated with the chief priests, had asked about the nature of the resurrection um, of the dead at the end time, which, of course, they, they denied that concept entirely. They're, 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 so their question, again, was one that was was not a real question. They didn't believe that there was going to be a resurrection of the dead at the end time. And so I think I find it ironical because Jesus and the Pharisees shared the same view on the question of, of a resurrection. And perhaps this is why in Mark's gospel, the expert in the law responds favorably to Jesus. And they, they seem, you know, he, he basically seems to admire Jesus. And there's a positive interaction between them. And Jesus says, well, you're not far from the kingdom of God. But in Matthew's gospel, that's impossible. You know, Matthew, uh, I think with the background of Matthew's community and over against the synagogue mm-hmm. and Matthew's view of Jewish religious leaders, you know, there's no possible uh, right. connection between any of them and Jesus. You don't have a Nicodemus or a Joseph of Arimathea right. who and are pious members of the council in, in Matthew's gospel. There's no room for that in Matthew's view of mm-hmm. the Jewish religious leaders. It, it, I have not thought about that before, but it does make sense within Matthew's presentation. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. So how does Matthew then present the Pharisees? Well, the, of course, as we said but several times, the Pharisees are the ones who are trying to destroy Jesus, as Matthew mentions already in Matthew twelve fourteen, And they're the ones who have taken the lead with entrapping Jesus in this encounter at the temple. Now, it's interesting because the phrase um, gathered together and it's in the Greek, it's sunek thesan epitaauta, occurs only here and in, Ma- and in Acts 4.26 in the New Testament. And, and in Acts, basically what we're dealing with is a citation of Psalm 2.2, where the kings of the earth and the leaders gather together against the Lord and against his anointed, um, which literally in the Septuagint is kata tu Christu autu, so against mm-hmm. his Christ. And this phrase, also this same phrase, sunek desan epi auta, only occurs four times in the Septuagint. So it's not a common phrase, to this, this combination of sunago with epi auta. And so this leads some to think that Matthew is atten- intentionally alluding to Psalm 2 by, you know, these were the leaders who were gathering together against the Lord and against his anointed oh, yeah. at this point. Yeah. yeah. Um, and again, as before in Matthew 22, the question, the expert in the law or, or lawyer, uh, the word here is namakos, and it's only here. Oh, this is the only place namakos is used in Matthew. Uh, Mark calls him a grammatus, and mm-hmm. I think practically speaking, they were probably synonymous, although there is only scant evidence uh, supporting that. But I think practically speaking, the, the, uh-huh. the nomikos and the grammatus would have been interchangeable. They were both experts in the law. Right. And so he, 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 here, as before in Matthew 22, the question the expert in the law asked Jesus is intended to test him. Now, right. earlier um, it was to entrap him. Here it's to test him, and the verb is pyrazo. And another interesting feature is that in Matthew... Only the tempter, 
or the Jewish religious leaders are the subject of this verb, and Jesus is always the object. So the verb pyrazo only occurs in Matthew's gospel um, with reference to Jesus, and, and the subject is either the tempter in the temptation narrative at the beginning or the Jewish religious leaders, which, again, sort of gives this a negative cast in, in Matthew's gospel. Yes, definitely. And um, I, Mark doesn't have that negativity no. for sure. No, no. Mark so. does not. Nor does Luke. So then the question this expert in the law asked Jesus is one that was a matter of discussion in the Judaism of Jesus' day. Uh, the New RSV translates it, Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And actually, the literal is, which is the great commandment in the law? But here we're dealing with the positive um, degree of an adjective, like ah, great, got it, being got it. used for the superlative degree, greatest. And that was not okay. uncommon in the, in the okay. New Testament. Now, the terms of the discussion in Judaism would have referred to the commandments. It wouldn't necessarily have referred to the commandments that were the greatest or the least, but rather they would have referred to the commands that were heavy or light. Mm. The heavy commandments were the ones that were uh, weighty, for example, or or the light commandments were the ones that were not so important. And in Matthew, this is reflected in the language of the weightier matters. Again, as we mentioned to this this Mm -hmm. verse in Matthew 23, 23, uh, the weightier matters of the law are are basically um, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Uh, And the but, but Matthew can also refer to the least of the commands. As, as I mentioned earlier in Matthew 5.19, right. Jesus says, you know, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. And right. I tell you, not until heaven and earth pass away shall, you know, the least of these commandments pass away. And anybody right. who, bra- who, who, who breaks one of the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So, right. so there seems to be an, an ongoing um, distinction in Matthew between the weightier matters and the least of the commands. Um, without necessarily um, doing away with even you know the least of the commands. Mm. So there um, were some in the Judaism of that day who uh, held that all the commandments in the Torah were of equal value. Mm-hmm. But long before the Second Temple era, the prophets had already raised the question of the relative importance of the ethical law over against right. the ceremonial law. We, we already see that, you know, that it's much more important to obey God from the heart than to than to offer offerings or or to 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 you know Amos something says something about trampling my courts you know with with insincere worship uh, and it's, it's they definitely emphasize more the ethical law and there is also some evidence that the rabbis were engaged in a similar discussion as well mm. and so Matthew's gospel seems to reflect the position that the ethical law takes precedence without implying that the ceremonial law may be set aside now this is very different from Mark's gospel which very clearly um, emphasizes that the ceremony that Jesus set aside the ceremonial law mm-hmm. so um, um, this in this in this matter Mark and Matthew are, are in are not in agreement mm-hmm. okay Okay. Um, and so how does a Jesus answer the questions then that as, as Matthew puts, puts it to there? Yeah. And, and in Matthew, then, as in Mark, uh, Jesus answers the question by reciting a portion of the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, one of the interesting side notes here is that the, this threefold heart and soul and mind 
um, <laughs> is not consistent between the Hebrew Bible, the various versions of the Septuagint, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's kind of all over the page. And Davies and Allison have a chart in their, in their three-volume commentary showing how yeah. it's kind of all over the page. But it's basically all saying essentially the same thing with all your being. Right. Um, and, and Jesus says, this is the greatest and the first commandment. I find it notable that among the Synoptic Gospels, only Mark prefaces that command to love God with a citation of Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I, to me, I, I, would have think, I would think that would have seemed to be particularly suitable to Matthew's setting. But here, as in other places, Matthew leaves details like this out because right. it seems like he's intentionally condensing Mark. Yeah, uh, but, but I'm surprised, too, that he left this You would out. think that Matthew, of all people, would have included that. I agree. <laughs> yeah. I agree. So then following this, Jesus follows then with the greatest command. Yeah, I mean, he basically says that the command to love the Lord your God with, with all your heart is the greatest and the first commandment. And that would have not have been surprising to the Pharisees. I think they would have agreed with that. And, and, and you know, I think this is the reason why you see this, the agreement between Jesus and the expert and the law reflected in Mark's account. I think that would have accurately reflected the fact that the Pharisees and Jesus were on the same page on this matter. But one matter that Jesus does not address explicitly is the question, what it means to love God in this way, mm-hmm. with, all, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Right. Um, and if we read from the context of Matthew, in Jesus, I think on Jesus' lips, this command means to seek God's kingdom, to seek right. to fulfill God's righteousness, and to fulfill God's will. And, and so in Matthew's gospel, it does have a primarily ethical focus. Right. Loving God right. is primarily about obeying God. Right. Does that, would you say that Mark has a different take on that? No, I don't think so. I think that would have been consistent across all the synoptic gospels. I yeah, think okay. they all have a, sim- okay. a similar basic understanding of what it means to love God with okay. all one's heart. It, 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 and, and this comes, I think this reflects not only the language of Deuteronomy, but because uh, right. if you dig into Deuteronomy, it's clear that's what it means to love God is to, is right. to follow okay. God's will and to obey God's okay. commands. Uh, it also, also in the prophets, I mean, you know, when, when they, when they say, when, you know, why are you trampling my courts with your, with your, you know, insincere offerings? I don't, I don't need your burnt offerings and sacrifices. What I want is you to love me with all your heart. And, right. and the implication is to, to obey, um, obey God with their lives. You know, so so I think this is a this is something that's kind of consistently um, a consistent theme throughout the Bible. But then we have the second part of this, right? Love your neighbor. And, and you know, it's interesting because the the expert in the law does not ask Jesus for the two top two commandments. <laughs> he says, "Which commandment is great in the law?" Mm-hmm. So he's asking for one command, right? And Jesus goes on to add a second great commandment that really wasn't wasn't asked for and this would this was the this was the move that was really unprecedented in this context the second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself in verse 39 mm-hmm. now of course Matthew is citing Leviticus 19:18 here which is found in the context of the holiness code that's something of a representation of many of the commands found elsewhere in the Torah and Leviticus 19 itself focuses uh, contains what i consider to be an alternate an alternate version of of the 10 commandments yes 
so in Leviticus 19, the command to love your neighbor as yourself presupposes appropriate self-love. I mean, it just takes mm-hmm. it for granted that, you, that we love ourselves and focuses basically on solidarity within the community of Israel, which, by the way, does include the aliens living among them in, in the Torah, in the original Torah. Okay. Love for neighbor would have included not only the community of Israel, but also the aliens living among them. So the, the command to love one's neighbor was a matter of living in solidarity with the community of those who identify as God's people, along with the foreigners living among them. Now, again, there is no evidence that in the Judaism of Jesus' day, this command was extended beyond the greater Jewish community. But it is clear in the synoptic tradition, as well as in Matthew's gospel specifically, that this command extends to all people universally. Mm -hmm. And we see it even extended to the enemy in in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 43 to 47. So then in Matthew, this kind of love for neighbor would have been the focus of the weightier matters of the law, including justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And in the Gospels and in the rest of the New Testament, the content of love, or agapao, or agape, Mm -hmm. is defined by Jesus' expression of love for all persons, giving his life for us on the cross. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's important to get it that way around. The content of agapao, or agape, is defined by Jesus. It's not that agape was a special holy christian word that that that's only meant only referred to this kind of charitable love or or merciful love Um, it was it was used elsewhere in in greek literature it was used in the septuagint it's even used in the new testament in some negative ways i i think as you say that that i've seen some christian groups that seem to think that's kind of some special oh yeah oh yeah and it's not see that yeah yeah and and i've yeah, I've always the kind content of comes from Jesus. Shook my head about that. Yeah, exactly. the content comes from Jesus, not from the fact that this word was some this special word. word. Yeah, got it. No. Okay. Um, so, can you tell me more about how the second commandment then relates to the first? Well, Jesus says that it's like the first great commandment, and and again, this statement, this explicit statement, is only found in Matthew's gospel. In Luke, the expert on the law simply adds the command to love neighbor to the command to love God without further comment. He right. d- you know, because yeah. Jesus asked him, what do you read in the law? And so the expert on the law summarizes the law, the demand the, the of the law as that, that, that is necessary to inherit eternal life as love God with all your heart and love your neighbors yourself. Um, in, in, um, in Mark, Jesus calls it simply the second. He just, he just... You know, he just, and the second is, uh-huh, uh-huh. you shall love your neighbors yourself. Hmm. So it would seem that Matthew is making explicit what the others imply, that mm-hmm. the command to love your neighbors yourself is equal to and integrally connected to the command to love God with all your heart. And again, yes. this is an emphasis that originated with the New Testament, although there are some loose precedents in Judaism. And again, specifically, we should note, it, seemed, it would seem fairly clear that it was Jesus who first connected the command to love right. God with all your heart in Deuteronomy 6.5 with the command to right. love your neighbors yourself in, in Leviticus 19.18. Right. right. But this is an interesting, because as I'm reading Reformers later on, that there's definitely, that these are tied together. It's mm-hmm. not one and two, mm-hmm. but one and two are together. So that it's listed this way is, is interesting, although 
When we talked about the, the Markin version of this pa- pa- passage a couple of years ago, I pointed out, I think, that in Philo's treatise on the, on the Ten Commandments, he says that the, he points out that the Ten Commandments are divided into two sets of five, right. the first of which concerns piety or eusebia, and the second of which concerns justice towards human beings. And he adds right. that those who practice the first five commandments are lovers of God, philothaioi, and the second are lovers of human beings, philanthropoi. And so you, you see this connection between love of God and love of right. others, but he does not specifically connect Deuteronomy 6.5 with Deuteronomy 19.18. Now, the, 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 the thought process may have been there for Philo. You know, basically, Philo was first century BCE, right? right? So just right. before Jesus. So the thought process may have been there, but he does not make the connection explicit the way Jesus does. So yeah, that's important yeah, yeah, to, yeah. To, to, and again, this is one of the reasons why I think that this, this passage does reflect tradition that goes back to Jesus, because yeah, I agree. It, it, I agree. it is, it is without precedent. It, it's so important. It's so self-defining of who Jesus is, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So without it, it, without Jesus there and, and claiming it came from a different origin kind of takes away from it does. Jesus, how we, and Jesus is important. You know, there, there are some. Historically, right? Just yes. Historically, who Jesus is. Yes. Yeah. There, there are some sayings of Jesus that we've, we, as, we've, as, we've, as we've made our way through the Gospels, there are some sayings of Jesus that I have no problem recognizing as probably sayings of Christian prophets that are put back on the lips of Jesus by the Gospel writers. Right. I don't think this is one of those. <laughs> this is not. I agree. No, no. I agree. Yeah. But it's an, it, it is interesting, this, um, this synoptic problem that we're Yep. We're digging through in this. Yes, so. indeed. So how does, this, how does this particular part conclude? Well, Matthew concludes, and again, this is Matthew's summation. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets in Matthew twenty-two forty. And so, in other words, the idea is that these two commandments inform and direct one's obedience to all the commands in the commitment to do the will of the Father, which you see in Matthew seven twenty-one, which is the mark of those who are part of Jesus' community. As Jesus said in Matthew twelve fifty, those who are my true brothers and sisters and mother are the ones who do the will of God. And so that's, that's the focus, basically, of these two commandments in, in Matthew. And so then, in my opinion, there's a little bit of a shift. Oh, there's a huge go, shift. <laughs> go to this next. So we have this big shift into the second section where Jesus then asked the question of these people that had just questioned him. Yes. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? Right. And, and so Jesus basically turns things around on, on them. Um, um, you know, he, he turns the tables on them. You know, they've been interrogating him. And so, so you know, he's answered all their questions brilliantly. And um, now he asks them a question that stumps them, basically. And I must apologize because I gave, I gave the first part of this, this, the lesson for today, much more attention than I gave to this part. Um, and so it just didn't matters. And just in terms of time, you know, I, I, I dealt with this in much, in a much briefer way. Their reply to this, to his question is a textbook answer for them. The son of David, by definition in Judaism, the Messiah was the son of David. Now, as I've said before, there was not a monolithic, monolithic expectation for a Messiah in the Judaism of Jesus day. There were several different expectations surrounding a messiah or messiahs multiple 
messiahs mm-hmm. uh, that were to come. But for the, for the Pharisees, for the rabbinic tradition, the, the, the definitive answer of, of who the Messiah is, is the son of David. So, but we've already seen in the Gospel of Matthew, both these titles, Messiah and son of David, are clearly used for Jesus, but they are interpreted in Matthew's Gospel based on Jesus' self-identification as the son of man who exercises authority and power, based on the fact that those who approach Jesus in faith call him also Lord, Kyrios, which is, is the translation for um, Adonai or even Yahweh in the Septuagint, um, uh, translating from the Hebrew. Um, and especially in Matthew, the titles Messiah and Son of David are interpreted by Peter's confession in Matthew 16, 16. Mm-hmm. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So, you know... It, that is the answer. Matthew's already given the answer to the readers, right? The answer right. who is 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 the Messiah is yes, he is the son of David, but he's also the son of man. He is the the son of God. He is the Lord, and so right. clearly the Pharisees' answer is inadequate because it it doesn't really go into the full dimension of who Jesus was. Well, Jesus asked then a further question. Yes, indeed, you and, know. and and he calls he basically calls them out even further you know he's calling them out by the question but then then he calls them out further by asking not uh what do you think or whose son is he but rather how how is it then that david by the spirit calls him lord saying the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand until i put your enemies under your feet if david thus calls him lord how can he be his son that's matthew 22 now, uh, as we've mentioned before, I think when we were dealing with this passage a few years ago, this citation is from Psalm 110.1. And most people, you know, if you ask people, uh, the average person, what is the most frequently cited Old Testament passage in the New Testament? Most people would probably not think of Psalm 110.1. <laughs> they would probably think of something from Psalm 22 or from Isaiah 53 connected to Jesus' death on the cross. But right. it is actually this, and it's, it's associated with Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to the right hand um, in the New uh-huh. Testament. And so it's used throughout the New Testament uh, as, as a support hmm. for, for the resurrection of Jesus and the exaltation of Jesus at the ascension to the right hand of, of God. So, um, many, how many times does the New Testament allude to this? Well, there's 37 citations or allusions. Wow. 37 times in That's the New crazy. Testament. Yes, it is. That's crazy. I, I think it's, again, I, it just shows. I don't shows, think I would have known that. No, no, we wouldn't guess that. But it, it, is, it, is, all, it is all over the place because, you know, the issue is, mm-hmm. you know, the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension to the right hand of God. Um, at, at his exaltation. So because of this extensive use of the Psalm 110 in the New Testament, some question whether this citation came from Jesus. It gave the early Christians an interpretive framework from the Hebrew Bible for understanding Jesus' resurrection and exaltation. I think we can understand how important that was because, right. yes, you know, yes, yes. I mean, after the, after the cross, they were totally disoriented. And, 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 you know, it took them a while to wrap their heads, uh, wrap their heads around the whole notion of, of Jesus' resurrection and exaltation. But if that is the case, if, if, if it, you know, 
this this citation does not go back to Jesus, then the whole episode will have been formulate, formulated by one of the teachers of the Christian community. I think it's at least equally likely that Jesus cited it as a reference to himself. And I've always just seen the, 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 the prevalence of this um, passage in the New Testament, 37 citations or allusions, as an echo of the fact that Jesus referred, him, referred it to himself. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, so... So how, I mean, we're, we're kind of, how, how do we sum all this up? Well, in the context of Matthew's gospel, I think part of the point of this passage is that it is inadequate to identify God who is with us, right? Emmanuel. Mm-hmm. Uh, the earth, uh, and Lutz says it this way, the earthly one who is at the same time the exalted one who has all power in heaven and on earth, right? Simply as the son of David. Now, to identify him as the son of David in itself is not wrong. It just does it does not go far it enough. It doesn't, right. It does not go yeah. far enough. He's much more than that. Um, therefore, the Pharisees remain silent because Jesus has stumped them, basically. And Matthew adds, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions <laughs> in verse 46, right? And, and this right. is significant because in Matthew's gospel, the only thing left is for Jesus to pronounce the woes upon him in the chapter following in Matthew 23. Mm-hmm. And after that, he will have virtually nothing more to say to the Jewish religious leaders. Mm-hmm. At his trial, he's virtually silent. He, he has virtually nothing more to say to them. And I think this has implications for the relationship between Matthew's community and the synagogue and could reflect the fact that the break between them had been completed before the gospel was written. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think, I think when we first that. started our journey through Matthew, I mentioned that we weren't sure, and we're not really sure whether the break was in the process or whether it was completed. But this would seem to imply, this this significant right. silence would seem to imply that there was nothing left to be said to the Jewish religious right. leaders, right. including the, yeah. the leaders of the synagogue that were opposing Matthew's community. Well, that's, a, you know, that's kind of a fascinating thing to think about as you're thinking about the authorship of this and how it was written and and what that community looked like. And that's something I think I haven't thought about before with this particular text. So that's, it's helpful and alarming at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Hi friends. We're back and we're going to talk about uh, how, Calvin and the reformers dealt with this uh, passage. And so, uh, Christy, talk to us about what you found here. Sure. I, I, today I really looked at Calvin. And he puts this verse together with Mark 12, 28 through 34, along with Luke 10, 25 through 37. But he admits, in this case, that Luke's version is very different. And as he says, he puts them together because it was the last question in which Jesus put the Pharisees to the test. For Calvin, the scribe that goes away in Luke is different than that of Mark and Matthew. For he, in Luke's version, is full of pride, while Matthew's character is agreeable. Really? (laughs) That's how he says it. Really? I I would think that, I mean, Mark's character is agreeable, but there's no indication of response on the part of a Jesus questioner in in Matthew. I, I know, and so I wonder... I'm not exactly sure why he lumps that together, except that he admits that Luke is so different mm-hmm. that he, I think, just assumes that Matthew's character is agreeable. He has so, to. He has to be assuming that 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 Matthew has just kind of shortened 
the the story, and then, then he's reading Mark into into Matthew. I agree, and, yeah. and and I think he even admits that. I mean, yeah. he's you know, as he says, they're so similar. He's trying to make them fit together. Mm-hmm. So he is somewhat torn about putting them all together, as the telling is different. Which, yay, Calvin. Um, however. He believes that in all three tellings, that the purpose is to catch Christ unaware and that they are looking to find him at odds with the law. Interesting. Again, I would say I don't see that in Mark's gospel at all. In Mark's gospel, it seems like the the scribe that Mark describes is actually commending Jesus for his answer to the Sadducees about the resurrection. And they're, they're very much on the same page in Mark's gospel. Well, again, you're seeing Calvin with a very different lens because he wants to put them all he wants sure. them all to work together sure he's We're harmonizing trying to look at each yes exactly that's what he calls it right yeah, yeah. and he, he's calvin, doing it intentionally because he's trying to construct a biography of jesus yeah yeah so calvin expounds on verse 37 and i love this because in combining it with mark calvin reminds us that we need to be confident that christ is our true creator and mark adds that 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 um, peace, Lord our God, the Lord is one. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is to remind us that the core understanding is a prerequisite for our creation, and that because God created out of love, God freely adopts us. So you could hear all this Reformation sure. stuff piled into that description. Sure. So that part in Mark is really important, and he's actually a little critical that Matthew leaves it out. Huh, interesting. Um, so Calvin claims that it is the Jews the question the one true God, and that if when they do this, they are held back by mistrust. Mm. And I think this is really deep. In other words, in Calvin's view, the questioning of Jesus and their, the inability to understand mm. reflects their lack of belief in the true God and that they have adopted the laws, i.e. the stuff they do, as a substitute for the wow. true God. So you hear works righteousness sure. in this, right? Sure. So in Calvin... In interpreting this, claims that those who know the law but can't recognize who Christ is are, quote, sleeping through the revelation of God in person. Wow, that's pretty uh, in your face. <laughs> it is, it is. But um, again, also from the context of the Reformation, where you're where people seem to be just going through the motions of doing things, mm-hmm. they're missing out on who God actually is. And here's God incarnate in their face and they can't recognize it because they're so caught up on the doing. I have to wonder whether Calvin isn't um, um, ascribing some of his criticisms of the Roman Catholic Church to the Jewish religious leaders. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Using them as sort of a a foil for for expressing his criticisms of the Roman Catholic Church. Absolutely. Now, how much aware of that he is, I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah. But absolutely, because that's the lens he sees it from. Sure. And um, yeah. So for Calvin, the love of God is, quote, the beginning of religion. This is freely given and freely received. In other words, this really parallels Luther's freedom of a Christian, which we've talked about before. So we are not forced to follow God's law, but we do so freely out of love. This should, as Calvin reminds us, be with our whole being as it is stated in with all of your heart, soul, and strength. And also, it is not the outward signs Hmm. that reflect obedience to God, but our inner disposition. Interesting. Because, you know, the way that I interpreted it was, you know, it's a matter of basically um, obeying God's 
will by doing the commands and by, by mm -hmm. practicing justice right. and mercy and, and faithfulness in, right. in one's and, life. Well, he's, Calvin says this. We know that in the practice of faith following Calvin, that it is all, you're, you're following an action. And so it is really about what you do as well. Yeah. But he always want, he's always trying to make that point of, it's how you're transformed inside that leads to those outside behaviors, not the behaviors forming the inside. And yeah. so I think that's what he's getting at here, even though he doesn't continue on with that. I, I think I would probably want to argue with him that it's probably more complicated than that. There's a, there's a, you know, there, it's kind of a both and, you know, in practice and, and, you know, <laughs> his, 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 his um, desire to, to oppose the works righteousness he saw in the Roman Catholic system is coming out here. You see it here, but we've seen other places in Calvin already where he's recognizing that more com complex relationship, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, and again, I think I think anytime you read these folks, you're reading through different layers of analysis, sure. and this right here clearly is what he's is on his mind right yeah, now. Yeah, sure. So Calvin continues to note that the love of neighbor is a second law of God. Uh, is second, as the love of God is first, and acknowledges that this is the same order as the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. And what I think is really modern about Calvin's analysis is that he claims that, quote, every man is self-centered. Mm. That's a very Renaissance concept of the world. Um, and therefore, we can't love our neighbor unless God's love is first. Mm. In other words, we can't have love that extends beyond self without God. And once this love of the God is established, love of neighbor, neighbor flows naturally. Yeah. And he takes a point as an aside to point out that Moses's claim that we should love our neighbor as ourselves does not give priority to a self love, which I think is one way that this is often read. Oh, well, we love ourselves first and then we love neighbor. Right. But he says, no, this create that this rather that this, creates our neighbor as equal to ourselves and encourages us mm -hmm. to reach out to others as a correct form of God's love. Surely. So now I want to take a minute to put this in the context of the Reformation era, uh, which remember, it's, it's, it parallels Italian humanism, and this is really a rebirth of the individual and a renewed confidence in the individual. So it was an era that elevated self-love as a whole, right? And mm -hmm. you really, really see this with especially these grandiose things that come up around the individual and the building up of character. And we see it in within the context of the uh, Roman Catholic hierarchy as well, mm. where you get these very popes with this elaborate practice of elevating self. Mm -hmm. So when Calvin comes to this passage, he is in part, I think, responding to the self-centered practices that were becoming part of the Renaissance mindset. Um, and I don't know that he would have gone out of his way to make this argument had it not been so prevalent in the era. Sure. And, you know, like um, um, Servetus and some of those folks that we've talked about before who are just, you know, walking, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> self-aggrandizing Yeah, people. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So in verse 40, Calvin concludes that love is the central theme whole foundation, quote, and structure of holy, upright living that was the service of God and love for men. Yeah. In verse 41, then we have that shift, and Calvin addresses this differently as well. Here he talks about how the Jewish leadership expected a human Christ. Surely, 41. yeah. And I but think he's right. I think he's right there. I think so too. 
But according to Calvin, Jesus asked the question to show that the Messiah is the Son of God, that he is both divine and human. It's a big deal, as if it was the source of so many of the heresies oh, right. of the church. Sure. And as he says, Calvin says, quote, ever since Christ was revealed to the world, heretics have used many <laughs> devices or insinuations to subvert the world either by his, by his human or divine nature, either reducing his power to save us or closing our familiar way of approach to him. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'd have to say I, I, I do think that Calvin is reading in to, to the setting of Jesus um, ministry or even the setting of Matthew's community, the, the Christological debates that happened in the church, Absolutely. you know, in the centuries, but much later. That's what's, that's what's going on in right. the Reformation. Right. And as I said, it's the concern of that time. As yeah. again, the heresies of the early church right. are running rampant with the decline of the power of the Roman Catholic right. Church. Um, the one thing that the Roman Catholic Church or the medieval church did do through the Inquisition, and particularly, notoriously, the Spanish Inquisition, but also the Roman Inquisition, was promote and insist on a consistent theology, consistent practice. While the Reformation questioned and altered uh, this Roman Catholic tradition, it opened the way for new heresies to emerge, or perhaps old ones, right. Right? the same questions. So the nature of Christ, again, becomes a common theme. Mm -hmm. What is of Christ. And mm -hmm. so they're, it's kind of like they're starting over as all these people are reading scripture and on their own and all these things that had kind of been put underneath Roman Catholic um, in, inquisitory power now have reemerged again. Well, and you know, I've often said that in my mind, uh, New Testament Christology is primarily functional not ontological. It's not about who Jesus is. It's about what right. Jesus does. Right. Um, and, and of course, obviously, that's, that's stating it a bit simply because to, Jesus does what he does because of who he is. Right. But right. there right. is no interest whatsoever in the New Testament in addressing this question of how is Jesus both human and divine. It's simply, you know, it's, it's more surround, it, you know, the Christology of the New Testament is more surrounding these titles, and the titles are somewhat functional in terms of, mm -hmm. of describing who Jesus is by what he does. Mm -hmm. I kind of wish that I almost kind of wish that the new that the early church had kind of skipped over the whole ontological issue and focused more on that question in, in their understanding of Jesus. That's a good, you know, that is a good point there because yeah. I think you're right. If they become so caught up in this deep um, theological and philosophical philosophical question yeah. exactly of who christ uh, who christ is that they sometimes do kind of kind of overlook his well it's the influence of neoplatonism in the early church absolutely. that led to these well, questions absolutely yeah. right yeah. i mean they're they're caught up with dealing with the with the same kinds of arguments that our greek philosophers are dealing mm -hmm. with and it makes sense why they are engaged in that and i think there's an intellectual sophistication that they feel that they need to be involved with, right, right? right and right. i think that happens to us today honestly right, right. you know i agree <laughs> so the rest of calvin's analysis has to do with the nature of the kingdom kingdom being of god and of a savior who is both god and man and he reminds us that the kingdom of christ does not depend on human beings but on god so in a way it's a it supports the section above by noting that humans and their actions are not in control of god's kingdom but god is and God's love reigns, not human actions. So that's what I have today. Thanks, Christy. Thanks.
Hi, friends. We're back, and um, we're going to discuss something that's kind of actually not addressed directly by the text, but it, it is raised in our modern context, and, and it's the question of what it means to love God. Um, and, and part of the background for this is that we live in an era where, um, you know, a lot of people believe that, it's, it's, that they can love people, they can be kind and compassionate and caring people without any reference to God. And, and this kind of started back in the days of the Enlightenment with, yes. with people like Immanuel Kant trying to formulate an ethical uh, system without reference to the supernatural. And I think what Kant unintentionally did was pave the way for people to just say, well, we can, we can be loving people without reference to God. So uh, that's kind of what we're gonna, how we're going to deal with this. So, Christy, uh, uh, what are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, as we started talking about this, it reminded me of a situation that I had last week. And I was invited into a Sunday school class that my church has or we host. But the folks there, um, most of them don't believe in God, or at least they're questioning. And we, we call the class journeys. So this, this group of folks are, they're journeying, which I appreciate. But um, what struck me about this is that, you know, they're, they don't see a connection between God and, and love of neighbor. To them, those are separate things. They can, as you said, be loving people who care for one each other. They don't need God in the picture. And I'm speaking very broadly. There are yes. many different spaces in their in their walk. But what struck me then this week, I just got this. I, so last week we were really working on. Um, uh, we're in the middle of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict right now. This war that's broken up with Hamas, and it's very disturbing for folks. And so at church. We've been talking about hope. We've been talking about love of neighbor. We've been talking about prayer and things that we can do um, to be people of hope and people that love others. Um, and, but I got this note from the journeys class today. Of what, what can you offer? What Everyone is so upset about this. They don't know what to do. And I think there's a, I think there's this missing link between God and God's love for them and how they can respond to love of neighbor. Yeah. And so I'm seeing this disjointed situation. And I wrote back and I said, well, you could start with worship, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and um, But I think what we see today in this kind of modern construct with these seekers actually wanting to seek everywhere but yes. God, yes. This, kind of, this kind of being lost. And yeah. I, think, I think that's what is stemming off of what you're talking about. So... Uh, perhaps you can give some additional insight into my dilemma, I guess. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, I think, I think you're right. I mean, I, you know, and, and uh, one of the things I think that is characteristic of the postmodern era is this, this idea that, that human life can be completely separate from any kind of reference to a deity whatsoever. We can live just fine on our own. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, for, for the sake of argument, I will, I will agree, yes, there are some people who manage to become truly caring and compassionate people without any kind of connection, overt connection to God. Uh, you know, I think of the Dalai Lama, you know, for example. Right. Um, his, his Tibetan Buddhism is, is um, formally speaking, agnostic. You know, he, he, he right. does not, it's not based on any kind of theistic basis or any kind of uh, affirmation of God. Um, I, I think, though, 
That is exceptional. People who attain that without any kind of connection with the love of God, whether it's God's love for us or then our love for God that is in response to the love that we experience from God, I think that is really exceptional, and I think it's becoming more and more rare. I mean, I think what you see these days is is more um, what uh, Ulrich Lutz in his commentary calls the absolutizing of the self. You know, mm-hmm. man is the measure of all things. Um, yep, you know, exactly. Whatever pleases me or whatever I want is the is the is the standard for but, measuring whether something is ethical or not. But that's that's how we've been. You know, love of self is first. Self care, self everything. Mm, self esteem. You need, you need this. <laughs> yes. You need this to feel good. You yes. need, and, and all is focused. You deserve. On you. you deserve. That's that's like one of the most used phrases in advertising these days. You deserve. You, well, I keep. You said that you deserve a break today. Was that McDonald's? Yes, indeed. I think it was. Today. I think it started years ago. But yeah, of course all it did. Of this self, the self orientation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, if, if you're the source of love, then you are the source of all that judgment. But that puts a lot of stress on self, too. Sure does. You know? And, and, you know, again, I, you know, I don't necessarily blame or fault someone like Immanuel Kant for trying to come up with a, an ethical imperative that is, that, is, that is based on just simply what it means to be human. I don't fault right. him for that, but I think he intentionally, unintentionally opened the door for what we have now in this postmodern era where people just are, they say, well, look, you know, yeah, if you want to believe in God, that's fine for you, but I, I can be a good person. I can be a kind and caring person without that. And I want to say, um, you know, it's almost like, um, uh, okay, show, show me. Show me by the way you interact with people. Show me by the way you treat the least of these. Show me by, by the way you interact with the uh, the someone who's very difficult in your life. Show me by the way you handle conflict. Show me um, your ability to be a kind and loving person without reference to God. I personally find in my life that it is my experience of the love that God has for me that is the absolute bedrock for my ability to love other people. Right. I agree. I agree. I think to me, self-love, by definition, I mean, I self-love by definition doesn't really make that much sense, in, in a way, and that and that love really requires an object. So, mm-hmm. if you are the both the the cause of and the object of your own love, that does that really spins. In other words, when you care for some someone, does that automatically come back to how it benefits yourself? Right. Um, is that really love? <laughs> is that really love? But. Um, I do think, you know, as we're thinking about some of the Eastern, Eastern um, philosophies and Eastern religions, you're still talking about a spiritual experience Absolutely. out of self. Absolutely. Out of self. Absolutely. You know, that's, and, that's and focusing you to, to, to step away from yourself, to, force, to lose self. And in, and fact, so, in fact, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh has a word for it. He calls it interbeing. And the idea is that, that every, in, every, every, everyone and everything is interconnected yes, in this exactly. in this sort of um, a tapestry of life, and that we are all a part of of sort of the tapestry of life right. uh, in this interbeing, and so that that almost serves as a kind of higher power, you know, right. uh, and and sort of a, a bit larger source of love uh, for him. Yeah, yeah. 
I think that's part of it is is looking outside of self and mm-hmm. um and yet as we know we experience life through self I mean yes. you know yes you know I I that my being my body my everything sure. is is how I experience life so being able to take that experience and I think this is what has got gets at, at the scripture you know is is love your neighbors yourself so it's the sense of of but you aren't in yourself you're you're if if you're living your life the way we're designed to live you're living it amongst neighbors right? surely yes it's yeah. it's yeah you know and and uh, interestingly lutz uses the the phrase he calls the the way the postmodern world functions in this way a godless and autonomous world and i kind of like that because it's you no know, godless yeah. in the sense of we don't need god to be good and kind and loving people we can do it all on our own we're autonomous. We can just right. exist and we can find fulfillment and we can be caring and compassionate and kind, loving people all on our own. We can be autonomous. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I like the fact that he phrased it that way because, and, and one of the reasons I like it is because Moltmann has some similar notions in, him, in the way he mm-hmm. phrases his theology. But um, I also like it because I think that sort of calls attention to the fallacy of thinking, maybe the inherent fallacy of thinking, I don't need God to be a loving and kind person. I can do it mm-hmm. all on my own. Well, that's an awfully, you, yes, some people do seem to attain that, but it's an awfully big ask. It's an awfully big demand. Right. And, and yeah. I think most people who try it, I, in my opinion, they tend to fall short. I don't, I don't really see it happening. I, I agree. I agree. But, um, well, I guess, at least for me, <laughs> um, this call to, to love neighbor and um, to love your God with all your heart and soul and strength is the core of um, what, uh, what drives me. So It is indeed. And I, I've said it before, yeah. you know, that, that, that these two are sort of the core of, of Christian faith. I mean, you were mm-hmm. to love God with all of our heart which means loving your neighbor as yourself. The two are integrally related, you know, and as, as Matthew phrased it, you know, the first great commandment is love the Lord, your God. And the second is like it. They're, they're, they're interrelated. They're, they're interconnected and can't be separated from one another. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Alan. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.